So I want you to do just a little bit of reminiscing as we start the sermon. I want you to think back over the last several weeks, several months, and try to take maybe a four-month snapshot. What were the biggest things that happened in your life over the last four months? So for you kids, that's when your school semester started, whatever grade you're in, about September. Uh, maybe end of August, you started a new school year. So from then until now, what are some big things? Or adults? What's been happening lately? What's shaping the way your days are unfolding? Now go back a little further. For those who are able, go back to the last four years. What's been going on since 2018, 2019 in your life, your heart, your family? For those who are old enough to do it, let's add a zero. Go back 40 years. What's been happening over the last 40 that shaped what's going on today? The big trajectory shaping moments. Go back now. For those, whether you're young or old, nobody has the personal experience with what I'm about to say. Let's add another zero if you took a history class. What's been happening for the last 400? That's a lot longer than even the nation we're in has existed as she is today. What's God been doing in the world? We've made it to week three in our Seeing God's Story sermon series, eight sermons trying to cover the whole Bible. What are the big things God has been doing in the world? How has he been at work for his glory, for the good of his people, for the advance of the gospel? Well, that's our focus again today. The theme sentence of the entire eight-week sermon series came from Dr. Kendall Easley's book on biblical history, and he says the whole Bible can basically be summed up in this one sentence. The Lord God, through his Christ, is graciously building a kingdom of redeemed people for their joy and for his glory. It's what the Bible's basically about. In week one, we looked at Genesis 1 to 11, the story of beginnings, and we saw the need for redemption. The reason the gospel, which means good news, is good news is because bad news is really, really bad. You're guilty before a holy God. Genesis 1 to 11 is the need for redemption. Then last week, we saw from Genesis 12 all the way to 2 Chronicles 9, 1,100 years, over 1,000 years. What was God doing? He was building his nation. And those two sermons took us from creation to King Solomon. And at the beginning of last week's sermon, there was no such thing as Israel. There was no nation of people that were God's people. In fact, Israel's grandfather... Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, didn't even know God at the beginning of last week's sermon. And then at the end of the sermon, there was an entire nation, millions of people living in the promised land under one king, Solomon. God built his nation. Today, in week three, going from 2 Chronicles chapter 10 all the way to the little book of Obadiah in the Old Testament, we're going to see how God instructs that nation how he teaches them. This isn't an elective class for those who've gone to college and know what that means. This isn't optional, it's not the gifted program. This is literally common core. What is God teaching his people from 2 Chronicles 10 to the book of Obadiah? We really need to know the answer to that question. What is he educating them about? While this portion of scripture may be very neglected, we affectionately refer to that section of our Bibles as the clean stuck together pages in the Old Testament. In that portion, there are rich treasures about God, about our heart, and especially about our Messiah, our Savior. Lest we miss the forest for the trees in this Sing God Story series, we're seeking to know how the Bible fits together as one book written by one author that points toward and culminates in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel labors. Indeed, the whole Bible is one story about how the Lord God through his Christ is graciously building a kingdom of redeemed people 
for their joy and for his glory. Today's portion covers 345 years. 931 BC, death of Solomon, to 586 BC, the deportation of Judah. 345 years, to put that in perspective, our chunk of the Old Testament is 100 more years than the history of the United States. Now imagine if you had the responsibility to teach all of that history of the U.S. plus another hundred years in one message. Obviously, we're not trying to exhaust this. We're not saying all that could be said, but we don't want to miss the big point. You need redemption, Genesis 1 to 11. God built a nation, Genesis 12, middle of Chronicles. Now he's teaching them. I hope that when we leave today's sermon, you will be able to better understand and apply the primary focus of the ministry of old dead guys whose names you've heard, but might not know what their ministry was all about. Elijah, Elisha, Joel, Amos, Jonah, Isaiah, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, Obadiah. What were they trying to get across? Right up front, I'm going to allow Dr. Easley to give us the main point of three and a half centuries of Scripture between the death of Solomon and the Babylonian captivity of Judah, 931 to 586 B.C. God was teaching his nation. Here's Dr. Easley's summary sentence. In the space of about three and a half centuries, God educated the nation he had built especially concerning the sin of idolatry. That's the class. That's the message. That is the point of our portion of Scripture. That is the point of today's sermon. God is educating his people about the seriousness of the sin of idolatry. Instead of reading an assortment of passages right here on the front end, We'll take a few portions of passages. If you have a Bible, you'll want to be ready to flip around to a few places. You can go ahead and open to Isaiah chapter 1 and meet me at the throne of grace as we ask once again for God's help before we jump into it. Let's pray together. Oh God, we do confess. In fact, the people in this room who don't even have the spirit to pray for themselves, we show by our actions that it is very, very hard for us to learn from the mistakes of the sins of other people. We are so proud, we are so stiff-necked, we are so me-centered that we think we will never fall into the same trap that those who've gone before us were ensnared. And instead of repeating the sins of Old Testament Israel, we do ask that today's sermon would be so anointed by the Holy Spirit that this portion of your word would so shape us that we live our lives in obedience to you. We thank you, especially, that even though we are guilty of the sins that we'll look at, you and your grace have given us the Lord Jesus, one, one among the millions and billions who've touched this earth who never sinned, but in your great mercy, suffered what our sins deserve cause our estimation of Jesus to rise and our appreciation of Jesus to rise. Cause our affection for Jesus to rise today. Cause our embrace of Jesus to get tighter today by faith. We ask in his name. Amen. So God's unwavering commitment to himself, his own glory, by maintaining his unwavering consequences for sin is the main point of 2 Chronicles 10 to the book of Obadiah. God wants us to know how serious he is about sin. So let's just start with some definitions. What is sin? According to the New Testament definition, sin is not glorifying God. You may not think that's a big deal, but that's the biggest deal in the universe to God. His glory. He made you for his glory. You will never be happy 
until you give God the glory that he deserves. Your biggest problem is that you have not done that. That's what sin is. It is a withholding from God the glory that he deserves. It is giving, on the other hand, ultimate glory to anything or anyone other than God. In essence, sin is putting yourself and your ideas and your plans and your ways and your prerogatives and your wants above God. Sin is a damnable missing of the mark. It is a falling short of the glory of God, Romans 3. Idolatry, that's what God wants his people to know about. The sin of idolatry is the substituting of anything or anyone in the place that God must possess in your worship. Your whole life devotion not the song you sing on a Sunday. Your worship is a whole life devotion to another to give your supreme affection, what you love the most, to give your praise, your love, your allegiance to anyone or anything, including your own self, instead of to the one true God is for you idolatry. In our portion of scripture, God was so nauseated by the sinfulness of idolatrous Israel, that he said to them what your Bible is open to right now. Isaiah chapter one, verse 13. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. Skip to 15. Isaiah 1, 15. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. If you learn anything from today's sermon, learn this. God will not acquiesce to your spiritual adultery. He is not okay with spiritual prostitution. God is not cool with your sin. He's not open to negotiating with you about your sin. You must be putting sin to death or you will die in it. The New Testament says it clearly. We are obligated not to our flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. In the very same passage that your Bible is open to, where God said, I don't want to hear your prayers anymore. I don't want to hear your music anymore. I don't care about your church service anymore. In the very same passage, if you got your Bible open to it, let your eyes fall on verse 18, where the same God said, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. God's not cool with your sin but he wants to forgive and restore sinners to himself more than they want to be forgiven, more than you want to be restored to God. He wants you to know him more than you wanna know him. And the proof of that proposition is a bloody piece of wood outside of Jerusalem. He put Jesus forward as the propitiation in his blood that demonstrates his saving love for sinners. Now, I know I sound a lot like a preacher, sin, 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 God, God, God. But let me give you something that happened to me. It was really unusual. It's never happened before. Last night, God came in my bedroom. He opened the door and he barged in and he stood at the foot of my bed. He woke me up from a dead sleep and he said, I hate to inform you that there's three people who are gonna be at church tomorrow who are unrepentant sinners. In fact, they're guilty of adultery and they've never told anybody. Then he told me their names. And then he told me to stand up here today and tell you all three of their names. But he said, give them 10 seconds. And if they don't say their name in 10 seconds, you say their name for them. How would that make you feel? You might be very uncomfortable right now being in a room with a preacher who's preparing to do such a thing, but I assure you, your discomfort would be much greater 
if you knew that yours was one of the names that I was preparing to say. The main point of this 345 year portion of scripture from the death of Solomon to the captivity of Israel and Judah is that God does know your heart. And he does want you to know spiritual adultery will not be tolerated. And forgiveness and restoration to God and power to obey him are available to you right now in Christ. There is no barrier between you right now and the cross of Jesus, none. Okay, now let me clarify. I hope I got your attention. God didn't tell me anybody's name last night. He didn't come in my room. It's not the way God speaks to people. I'm not gonna be announcing anybody's name about anything. However, if you're sweating bullets because you know you're guilty of that or any other unrepentant sin, you should absolutely find a church member or pastor or somebody before your head hits the pillow tonight so you can begin honest conversations, confessions, repentance, and gospel counseling for restoration. Second Chronicles 10 to Obadiah, 345 years, two points. Corruption, captivity. Division, deportation. First, the division of the kingdom. Second, the deportation, the captivity of the kingdoms. The first point is the longest. We'll spend most of our time here. That is corruption, division caused by sin. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 2 Chronicles 10. We'll be jumping over to several places. But as we think about the division of the kingdoms, this is what we mean. God created the world perfect, man's sin, corruption followed. God called Abram, changed his name to Abraham, made of him a nation, Israel. He brought that nation from slavery in Egypt into the promised land and when he gave them the land, he gave them a king. Good king David and his son Solomon, who was a compromiser full of sin, after Solomon was the king of the one Israel in the promised land, after he died, the kingdom divided. That's what we're talking about. King Solomon, David's son, died around 931 BC, which the nation of Israel then proceeded to plummet into sin and suffer its consequences. Second Chronicles chapter 10, verse 1, if you have your Bible open, look at this. Then Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. When Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard it, for he was in Egypt, where he had fled from the presence of King Solomon, Jeroboam returned to Egypt. So there's two guys, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Rehoboam is the rightful heir to the throne after Solomon. He was supposed to be king. And so what Rehoboam did was he consulted his dad, Solomon's counselors. What should I do? How should I do it? They gave him some good advice. He also was a young, foolish man, so he consulted his college drinking buddies. And he asked them what they thought, and they gave him very different counsel. You should be more severe than your father. You should be harder on the people than he was. You should show them how strong you are. Look at verse 6. 2 Chronicles chapter 10, verse 6. Then King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, How do you counsel me to answer this people? They spoke to him, saying, If you'll be kind to this people and please them and speak good words to them, then they'll be your servants forever. Verse 8, But he forsook the counsel of the elders which they had given him and consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. Verse 9, So he said to them, This is young friends, what counsel do you give that we may answer this people who have spoken to me saying, lighten the yoke which your father put on us. Verse 10, the young men who grew up with him spoke to him saying, thus you shall say to the people who spoke to you saying, your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter for us. You shall say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Basically, I beat my dad up. So you got two different kinds of counsel. This is the guy who's supposed to be the next king over all the people. Verse 13, the king answered them harshly, and King Rehoboam forsook the counsel of the elders. 
He spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I'm going to add to it. My father disciplined you with whips, but I'm going to discipline you with scorpions. He tried to show how big and bad he was, right? He decided to listen to his frat brothers instead of the older, wiser men. Why did he make such a prideful, mean-spirited, foolish decision? Look at verse 15. 2 Chronicles 10, 15, so the king did not listen to the people for it was a turn of events from God that the Lord might establish his word, which he had spoken through Ahijah, the Shilonite to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So what happened? Rehoboam took foolish counsel. Verse 15 tells us he did it because God had planned it that way. Because the sins of the people became a stench in the nostrils of God. And God wasn't going to let them enjoy the spoils of his blessing if their hearts defected from him. So the kingdom got divided. Ten tribes went north. Two tribes went south. Israel in the north. Judah in the south. Verse 19. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Ten tribes. Two tribes. Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. The kingdom's divided. Spiritually speaking, there was no difference between those people and all the pagan nations. They had so amalgamated all the gods of the nations into their life and devotion, they didn't look any different than the rest of the pagan nations. The book of Isaiah, we hear the people speak to God and they say in Isaiah 64, 19, we have become exactly like those people over whom God never ruled. Look just like the lost pagan nations, Isaiah 64, 19. They looked and acted like the world. They were suffering the consequences of their sin, the division of the kingdom. For the entirety of the time that Israel, ten tribes, and Judah, two tribes, Jeroboam, the first king, Rehoboam, the first king, for the entirety of their division, they fought with each other, depleted each other's human resources and military power. Instead of just decimating them, flicking them off of his planet, eliminating them from the earth, God instead pursued them. What does God do when you sin? Is he shocked? Is he surprised? Does he have to go to plan B to try to figure out how to get you to come back? No, no. God pursued them in accord with his eternal covenant. He gave them grace, he gave them truth. How did he do it? He raised up prophets to call the people to repent of their idolatry and return to the true God-centered worship of God. That's what he did. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Before we go to the deportation, the captivity, let's just look at each of these two kingdoms, Israel in the north. The northern kingdom, I mentioned, had ten tribes. Who were they? Asher, Dan, Ephraim, Gad, Issachar, Manasseh, Naphtali, Reuben, Simeon, and Zebulon. Ten tribes. The northern kingdom was ruled by three separate dynasties. Jeroboam was their first king. Every single king in Israel was wicked in God's sight. Their first king, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, was the prototype of all the other kings who would reign in Israel. What was the wicked thing that Jeroboam did that all the other kings continued to do? To make it sound appropriately stunning to our ears, I'll tell you what Jeroboam's sin was that God hated so much. You ready for this? He planted two churches. That was his crime against God. And he led all the generations of Israel to forsake the Lord by worshiping at those churches. He put up an unsanctioned altar in Dan, a city, and in Bethel, another city. And 25 times in the rest of Israel's history, we hear about every king that came after Jeroboam in Israel, this refrain. So-and-so 
King so-and-so of Israel walked in the ways of Jeroboam or committed the sin of Jeroboam or caused Israel to sin the sin of Jeroboam. What was the sin? Unsanctioned altars in Dan and Bethel. Here's why he did that. Israel, I said, had 10 tribes. Judah had two tribes. Jerusalem was in Judah. The people were going there to worship. Jeroboam thought, oh no, if they go there, then they might fall in love with that king. They might displace me. They might kill me. They might be devoted to him. I might lose my kingdom. So he put an altar right here in the south of Israel, just before you cross over into Judah. How convenient. And then one way up here, you people don't need to travel all the way down there. Just go to this church. Go to 1 Kings chapter 12. Why did Jeroboam do that? 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 26. Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, here it is, verse 27, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So, 28, the king consulted and made two golden calves. And he said to them, is it too much for you to go up to Jerusalem? Behold, here are your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. He set one in Bethel. He put another in Dan. Sorry, Bethel's in the south, Dan's in the north. Now this thing, do you see verse 30? This thing became a sin for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. What was the sin? Worship. That was the sin, idolatry. Do you see what Jeroboam did? He posed as if he was concerned for the spiritual welfare of the people, when in reality, he was concerned about his own power and the preservation of his life. At the root, Jeroboam was using God as a means to an end, rather than honoring God as the end in himself. In the very next chapter, a very sobering story unfolds for anybody who attempts to walk faithfully with God in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. Skim through 1 Kings 13 as I talk for just a moment. God sent a prophet from Judah to Jeroboam to show up at his altar during one of his worship services. And that prophet prophesied against the altar and against the king, against the kingdom and against their idolatry. Verse eight, 1 Kings 13, eight, but the man of God said to the king, if you were to give me half your house, I wouldn't go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water in this place. For it was commanded to me by the word of the Lord saying, you shall eat no bread, nor drink water, nor return by the way which you came. Now, what's that all about? I'm glad you asked. When God sent the prophet from Judah to Israel to tell Jeroboam, tear down your altars because God is not accepting the worship you try to give him there. God so hated their spiritual adultery and idolatry that he told the prophet, when you go that way, don't even walk on the same dirt. Go another way home. They're so sinful, I don't even want you to touch their dirt two times. Don't eat their bread, don't drink their water. So he went. Did he obey? Verse 15, 1 Kings 13, 15. This is the longest reading I'm going to read for the entire sermon. I double dog dare you to listen to it. Verse 15, 1 Kings chapter 13. Then he, that's the son of an old prophet living in Israel, said to the man of God, come home with me and eat bread. He said, I cannot return with you. I cannot go with you, nor will I eat bread or drink water in this place. For a command came to me by the word of the Lord. You shall eat no bread nor drink water. Don't even return by the way which you came. Verse 18, the he, that's the old prophet in Israel's son, he said to him, I'm a prophet like you. An angel came and spoke to me by the word of the Lord saying, bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him, verse 19. So he, that's the man of God from Judah, went back with him, ate bread at his house and drank water. Now it came about as they were sitting down at the table, the word of the Lord came to the old prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah saying, thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the command of your Lord, 
and have not observed the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but have returned and eaten bread and drunk water in the place which he said to you, eat no bread, drink no water, your body shall not come to the grave of your fathers. Interpretation, you're going to die here. Verse 23, it came about that after he ate bread, drank the water, he saddled the donkey for him and the prophet whom he had brought, for the prophet he had brought back, 24, when he had gone, a lion met him on the way and killed him. And his body was thrown on the road with the donkey standing beside it and the lion also standing beside the body. So let's just make sure we got this. A man of God, whose name we don't even know, was told, go up to Israel and tell them, God hates your worship. Don't walk home the same way. Don't eat anything. Don't drink anything. Just go tell them that and then get back. Okay. Instead, he's deceived by the sons of a carnal prophet. They lied to him, but the man of God disobeyed God, and he went and ate with them. And the prophet said, you're going to die here. You're a compromiser too. So on his way home, sure enough, a lion kills him. And we know it's another miraculous thing because a lion doesn't even eat him, just kills him and throws his body in a ditch and stands there right beside him. Now, I want you to listen so carefully to this. What were the consequences of that one prophet not obeying God? Answer, every single king for generations in Israel continued to rebel. King so-and-so walked in the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. King so-and-so did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin 25 times. Every single king was wicked in God's sight because they never, never worshiped God according to his standard. Now I want you to think about something, application. Do you worship God according to his standard? Think about it. Do you worship God according to his standard or, or, or according to your own inventions? How serious a thing is it to you to see to it that you do not capitulate to your own conveniences or standards when you try to engage in God with worship? Let's get really practical. Is God accepting your worship right now? Or is it an abomination to him? Do you know it did not matter how frequently Israel went to the altar at Dan or Bethel? It didn't matter if they showed up weekly, daily, monthly, yearly. God would never accept their sacrifice from a man-centered altar. The new covenant is exactly the same. There is only one altar where God will accept your sacrifice. If you do not come to him through his son, how dare you come? Who do you think you are? To tell God, I appreciate you sending Jesus and all that, but I could get to you all by myself. If you get close to God without becoming clean before him through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, you will be condemned. Hebrews 13, we have an altar. We have a sacrifice. Therefore, Jesus, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go to him. That's the only worship God accepts. He's still the only way, the truth, and the life. No one ever at the time of salvation or in sanctification or in any worship service, nobody gets to God except through Jesus. All the kings, and I mean all, all, all of the kings of the northern tribes of Israel, continued to direct people to worship at false altars in Dan and Bethel. It didn't matter how sincere they were. They could cry and sing their heart out at every service. They could mean it as much as you could possibly mean something, but their offerings were never acceptable to God because they were at the wrong altar. God does not tolerate his praise on man's terms. So once again, I'll say something I've said here many times. If you're not getting much out of today's worship service, I say it with affection and I hope it actually sounds winsome. I hope it sounds inviting rather than repulsive. If you don't get much out of today's worship service, we don't care. We're not worshiping you. You're not the point. There's a God in heaven and you are not him. Do you worship him according to his terms? So when the man of God compromised. All he did was eat a meal and get a drink of water. 
You know what Jeroboam said? Oh, if he compromises, I'll compromise too. You want to know what happened? After Jeroboam, Nadab, and the dynasty of Basha, Elah, and the dynasty of Omri, Ahab, Ahaziah, Joram, Jehu, Jehoahaz, Jehoash, Jeroboam II, Menahim, Pekahiah, Hoshea, and every king in Israel continued to lead people away from God when they went to church week after week. So what does God do? This is where the ministry of God-fearing prophets emerges. Before the division of the kingdom, Israel, Judah, prophets were part of the organizational structure of Israel, Moses, so forth. But in the divided kingdom, a new breed of prophet emerged. God started to raise up these independent prophets. I don't know if you've ever seen a sobriety checkpoint on a road, but if you're driving home and the police just stop everybody and they check your driver's license and see if you're sober, that's what God was doing. Israel was inebriated in their sin, spiritual drunkenness. They were staggering around, didn't even know which way was up. They thought they knew God. And God gave them sobriety checkpoints. And he kept telling them they were drunk in their sin. And they were rebelling against God and they were full of idolatry and their worship was a stench in God's nostrils and if they didn't repent, they would be destroyed. And the cars of Israel just kept whizzing through the checkpoint. And so are some of you. One of the kings named Omni thought, God's not serious about all that sin stuff. I think that girl's pretty, so he married her. Her name was Jezebel. And that one king's wife did more to lead Israel into God-forsaking sin than any other one individual in Israel's history. We talk about don't be unequally yoked and pray a lot about who you're going to marry. You want to know why? Because there is no such thing as missionary dating and Omni may, have, Omni may have had good ideas about how to get Jezebel to follow the one true God, but he didn't follow him anyway. And God started to raise up prophets. Nobody liked them. They weren't popular. But he gave them these sobriety checkpoints. Who did God raise up? The first one was Elijah in Israel. Many of you know parts of his story. Let me summarize it. His name means Yahweh is my God. That's what Elijah means. That's exactly what his message was about. He ministered exclusively in the northern kingdom of Israel. He told them God hated their worship. The people were so amalgamated with the gods of the nations and so syncretistic. Oh, I'll worship you today. I'll worship Baal tomorrow. They were so syncretistic in their worship. They couldn't even see straight. And Elijah told them the truth. He prophesied of a three-year famine. He was fed by ravens miraculously during that famine. He raised a pagan widow's son in Zarephath. And then he commenced to embarrassing and killing the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. They did their dancing around and all their little spiritual hoopla. And then Elijah wetted the altar with water and filled the trench with water and called down fire from heaven, put the prophets of Baal to flight. And then he chased them down and killed them all in 1 Kings 18. He fasted for 40 days. He heard from God at Mount Sinai. He confronted King Ahab about the murder of Naboth over a vineyard. He called down judgment fire on Ahaziah, Ahab the king's son. And he was taken up at the end of his life by a whirlwind without ever tasting death. One of two men in the history of the world who didn't die. He was followed by Elisha. Another God-fearing man who had a longer ministry than Elijah. Second Kings 2 through 9, all about Elisha's ministry. One message, worship God or die. Repent or perish. God's not playing games with your sin. He's not going to compromise his character to be your friend. 
Stop playing games with God. That was Elisha's message. The Old Testament prophet Amos, God raised him up to tell the northern kingdoms of Israel all your injustice. You treat people by different weights and balances. You try to get over on the poor man. You criminalize people who didn't do anything wrong and you let people free who did. All your injustice and all your idolatry, God's going to punish it. They hated him too. Jonah was plucked up out of their midst and swallowed by a fish and then sent to a pagan Nineveh. And what happened when the resurrected from the dead prophet went to a pagan nation and told them to repent in Nineveh? They did it. Nineveh repented. The pagan nation repented. That's why that book's in your Bible, to show you the missionary heart of God. If you're not going to turn to him, it doesn't mean he's not going to get worship. He's going to go hunt somebody else down who will give it to him. That's the northern tribes. In the southern kingdom, I could say copy-paste. All of Kings and Chronicles is telling you about this. God was judging them. It's the whole reason they divided into two kingdoms. Because Solomon, the woman-loving wise man, the woman-abusing wise man, allowed syncretism to come in. Pick whatever God you like. Worship whoever you want to. So when his son, Rehoboam, became king, Egypt snuck in through Pharaoh Shishak. Israel constantly depleted Judah's resources. You want to know the worst thing Rehoboam ever did, the first king in Judah? Here's the worst thing he did. If you got your Bible, you can look at it. 2 Chronicles 12, 14. One verse, that's the worst thing he ever did. 2 Chronicles 12, 14. He did evil because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. You can underline that verse. You can apply it to your life. Does that verse describe you? Rehoboam was evil. Why was he evil, God? Because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. God in his grace brought Rehoboam's life to an end and then raised up Abijah, then raised up Asa. Under Asa the king, there was a little bit of reform. God used him to do some good. He repaired the altar. He renewed Israel's, uh, Judah's covenant with the Lord. Everybody agreed. In fact, this is crazy, unless it's true, but it's true. The entire kingdom under Asa said, we have a good idea. Could you imagine this room saying this today? If we do not seek the Lord, put us to death. And everybody sang and rejoiced making that covenant when Asa was their king, but even Asa was a compromiser. In the end, he turned out just like all the rest of them. You go to 2 Chronicles chapter 16, you let your eyes fall on verse 7, this is what you'll find. 2 Chronicles 16, 7. Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, because you have relied on the king of Aram and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand for the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You have acted foolishly. Indeed, from now on, you shall surely have wars. He sought God a little bit. There is no compartmentalizing. It's all for Christ or not at all. I could tell you the story of Judah in a lot of detail, but suffice it for today to say, sobriety checkpoints showed up all over the place. If you think Elijah calling fire down from heaven on the prophets of Baal on top of Mount Carmel in Israel was something, and you think the ministry of Elisha, the ministry of prophets like Joel and Jonah was something, doesn't hold a candle to what God was saying to Judah. He was calling back the line of David's kingdom. That's who was reigning in Judah. He was calling him back to himself. Sobriety checkpoint after checkpoint after checkpoint. The prophet Joel told him a locust plague was coming. 
And they should repent because it's just a parable, a small symbol of another coming great and terrible day of the Lord for all who don't repent, not just for Judah, but for every nation. God raised up Isaiah down in Judah. The first people to read his book lived in Jerusalem, but because of their idolatry and their sin-loving heart, they wouldn't turn. But even Isaiah told them, that's okay. God already has a plan. Long after you're dead and gone, God's going to bring up his servant. And he's going to bear the sins of God's people. And he's going to establish an unending kingdom. And he's going to get a new heavens and new earth. And he's going to be the king of that kingdom. And nobody's going to rebel. God raised up Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, brokenhearted Habakkuk and Jeremiah. God raised up Obadiah. All in Judah all telling them the truth and hated by everybody. So what does God do? I told you our longest point, our first point was our longest. The second point, I said that's division. And the second point is deportation, captivity. Solomon died, I told you, in 931. About then, 722 B.C., Assyria had come to power. They come into Israel, the northern kingdom, and they decimate all ten tribes. They absolutely destroy and take captives. They enslave and kill. They carry away Israel into Assyria, never to return again. Israel got amalgamated into Assyria and the following kingdoms. There was no Israel. Those 10 tribes got so crossbred with the Assyrians and the other pagan nations, you couldn't find them anymore. That was the consequence of their sin. The southern kingdom, about a century later, got invaded by Babylon, which all those prophets told them was gonna happen if they didn't turn from their sin, and guess what? You're stupid. I don't want to listen to you. Who do you think you are? Why do you think you know God better than everybody else? They wouldn't listen to the prophets. And exactly what the prophet says happens. Babylon is raised up to power. They sweep into Judah. They take them captive. They haul them away. They make their kids their slaves. And the covenant's broken. The only thing that's going to fix this, when Israel and Judah are carried to Assyria and Babylon because they wouldn't repent. The only thing that's gonna fix this, somehow, somehow God's gotta raise up David's son. Somebody's gotta come from David's line. We need a monarch, we need a king who's gonna fix this all. If you wanna know something absolutely flabbergasting, it should cause our jaws to hit the floor. Please, Lord, don't let us get numb to this news. The king who came from David's line came not first to conquer, but to be killed for the sins of his people. He won through his death. So here's our application. It's one and only one. Sobering question for you to ask. How sinful is your sin? Is it a bad habit? Is it a mistake? Just a little uh oh? You gonna do better next time? How sinful is your sin? Even if you're walking in full obedience, full of the Holy Spirit, close fellowship with Christ, even for you, I assure you, it's more serious than we've ever fully imagined. 345 years, God had one class. He was educating the entire nation in one class, one subject, one textbook, one theme, the sinfulness of sin.
Do you want to know how serious sin is? Look at the cross. Look at the second person of the Trinity. Look at the eternal Lord Jesus Christ who made the heavens and the earth, who stepped into time. Look at His cross. You'll know how serious sin's sinfulness is if you look at the cross. That's where the true Israel, the faithful Israel, the real man, the faithful subject, the one who obeyed the way we should have. And he wasn't taken captive because of his disobedience. He allowed sinful men to capture him. He allowed them to crucify him. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. That's King Jesus. He allowed them to crucify him. Why did he do it? Because your sin, I assure you, is way more serious than you've ever imagined. You may disregard every sobriety checkpoint God ever gives you. You may blow right through them, but the king who blew the doors off of his burial cave is gonna bring you right in front of his face one day very soon. And the king of the universe, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. He's going to summon you to stand in front of him. And I'm here today to tell you, this is amazing. This is almost too good to be true. And if God wouldn't have wrote it, it would be too good to be true. I'm here to tell you today, you can have a fair meeting with the king of the universe. Every knee is going to bow before him. That's not the question. The question is, are you bowing by force or are you bowing in glad-hearted delight? Full circle to the intro. In the nearly 400-year stretch between the death of Solomon and the deportation of Judah, we see God doing one main thing, telling everybody, Sin is a very big deal to God. And the glorious good news, it's next week's sermon. He preserves a faithful remnant. Right in the middle of God-forsaken paganism, when everybody's going to hell in a handbasket, guess what God's doing? He's plucking this one, and 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 he's keeping a faithful remnant to himself. And at the end of the age, those people are gonna see the smile break out on the face of the King of Glory. And Revelation 22, four is gonna happen. They're gonna see his face. No more curse, no more sin, no more rebellion, not a divided kingdom, one king of the people of God forever. Let's pray together.